Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. So we're thinking about a gracious dignity. When we talk about uh, organizations like Saving Innocence, just so you know, um, they are one of our community partners, and uh, they were brought to us by our high school kids, and then over the last couple of years, uh, we've made them a part of that. So when you give to Faith Promise, we give them money annually to operate and to do what they do. The backpacks are in addition to that. It's another way we can help out. And uh, those little backpacks are not inexpensive. So, you know, if you go out and you think it's a, you know, $30 commitment, no, they're more like 150 to $200. Uh, there's a specific list that they want in there. It is a crisis care package. It's a lot more than, you know, a teddy bear. So, uh, but it is a way for us to be directly involved and to realize that uh, about 400 direct interventions happen in LA County uh, every year. And, uh, and so uh, that we can be hands-on with that. We just want to support that, and so uh, thank you for thinking about that and what that means. It kind of fits with the idea of what it means to celebrate a gracious dignity. And when you stop and you think about how this radical change that happens with the coming of Jesus and the messianic moment and the expectation, the prophetic expectation that when the Messiah comes, there will be a change not only in the behavior of people but in the creatureliness of people that the very heart of human beings will be melted and molded and changed and made new and made fresh. And so no longer just worried about outcomes, but also thinking and paying attention to the root causes of things that happen in our lives and in our journey. And when you stop and you begin to think about how Jesus operated and how he behaved himself, he's consistently empowering and bringing dignity to situations that seriously lacked that sort of care and concern. So you have a lot of stories about Jesus that revolve around what are considered to be the sinners and the tax collectors. Uh, really, if you tried to think about a, 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 um, a colloquial saying that sort of captured the least of the least, well, sinners and tax collectors kind of did it in Jesus' day. And so you find him trafficking in that. But, it, but it's not confined to just that. I mean, we we talked last week about John's gospel and in chapter 4, that moment in which Jesus encounters not only a woman, but a Samaritan woman. Uh, not only a woman and a Samaritan woman, but a, a Samaritan woman who has a rather, um, you know, poor reputation in her own town for her behaviors, her acting out. And so if you trace the Gospel of John, you, you sort of get these milestones of these interactions as John opens with the story retelling of Genesis 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the coming of light, all of that happens in chapter 1. Chapter 2, the wedding at Cana of Galilee, Jesus coming out in this moment. Marriage is going to become a, a, a major metaphor in Jesus' teachings and how he uses that. Chapter 3 is Nicodemus showing up. So it's not just the down and outers, it's the up and outers. It's, it's those who have been a part of the religious elite who have not connected to the message that, that are longing to change the creatureliness. So, so it's across the board. Chapter 4 then is the Samaritan woman. Uh, you know, as we get in further, then we get into the stories of the healing at the pool at Bethesda that takes place on the Sabbath. And so we have this whole uh, controversy now of people getting healed, of Jesus saying, I'm elevating the dignity of the sick 
uh, and the health of that and the restoration of that of the, above the religiousness of the day. Uh, you're saying that we don't act out in this way. I'm saying you're acting up, and, and we're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to put on a religious face and not pay attention to the dignity of suffering people. We're just not doing it anymore. And then Jesus feeds the 5,000. These are all in sequence. And then we have, in chapter 8, we have that scene. Jesus has come, chapter 7, he's come to the Feast of the Tabernacles in Jerusalem. And upon his arrival there, there's this controversy going on in chapter 7 of who is he? Who is he really? And some people say he's a prophet, some people say he's not. Some people say he's of God, some people say he's of a demon. And so they're having this debate, chapter 7, chapter 8 opens, and the Pharisees have brought a woman to him who's been caught in adultery, and they stand her before him and say, this woman's been caught in adultery, the Mosaic law says she should die by stoning, what do you say? Now, no one's been stoned for the sin of adultery in several centuries. So that fell out of practice a long time ago. But they are basically putting Jesus in a no-win situation. If he says, she's okay, let her go, then those will, they will say, well, he's, he's not a keeper of the law. He's a liberal. He's a progressive. And if he says, stone her, then he's heartless and has no compassion. So, so he's in a no-win situation. So we're told then that he leans over and he begins to write. And he writes something in the dirt. We don't know what. And then he stands and he looks at the crowd and he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And there had to be sort of this awkward silence. And then he bends over again and begins to write. And then we're told one by one, the accusers begin to slip away until they are all gone. And then he says to the woman, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, there are none. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So we have this sequence in which Jesus is bringing dignity to those sequentially. I mean, it, it, and it happens in all of the Gospels. What Jesus does, who he spends time with, that this, and then immediately in chapter 9, we go to this man born blind. You can't get much more significant in the moment and in the symbolism of a man born blind who is beyond the reach of any help. To be born blind is to be without the hope of restoration. That is a hope. You can go blind and then you can get your sight back, but you can't be born blind and have, ever have sight. And so then Jesus heals the man born blind. Do you know what the next teaching is? Spiritual blindness. It's about spiritual blindness. And so we have this sequence in which these characters are being brought into this conversation of human dignity. And Jesus is consistently doing that. We'll hear this over and over. If Jesus knew who it was that bathed his feet, he would have nothing to do with her. Remember that little sequence? So a woman of poor reputation in a town comes into the home of Simon and begins to wash the feet of Jesus with her hair and her tears. And Simon is appalled if Jesus knew, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him and he would send her away. Except he does know. And he is trafficking in a gracious kind of dignity, a restoration of who she is. And he's more intent in his redemptive work in lifting humanity and bringing us somewhere instead of simply not doing the wrong things. And that becomes incredibly important. In 1950, William Faulkner received the Nobel Prize, and he took that occasion to, to receive the gift, to receive the prize, and he wrote a speech. And in it, he really talks about the reality that in 1950, some things are happening. Now, not many of us here were around then. 
Well, a few of us were around then. But in 1950, we were in the middle of uh, the nuclear Cold War. And uh, some of you who were born even later into the 60s, you remember this period of time. There was a very high expectation from about 1945 when the first uh, atomic bomb was detonated, uh, really through the early 70s. There was a high expectation that at some point we were all going to get blown up. Uh, when I was in elementary school, we had nuclear attack drills. How many of you were a part of a nuclear attack drill? Excellent. Uh, really smart stuff. We were to get under our desks. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, this is going to help. So uh, we went through that. And, uh, and, uh, and Faulkner makes this observation in 1950. He says, since the proliferation of the atomic bomb in these last five years, the whole world has become preoccupied with the fear of being blown up. And what has happened as a result of that is those artisans and creators and writers who are responsible to lift the human spirit and to instill dignity in human beings have given up writing about such things and instead are writing about fear. And they're writing about the baser things of life and who's to blame. And so Faulkner, in his reception speech in 1950, uh, writes these words. Our tragedy today is a general and universal physical fear so long sustained by now that we can hardly bear it. There is no longer problems of the spirit. There is only the question, will I be blown up? Because of this, the young man or woman writing today has forgotten the problems of the human heart in conflict with itself, which alone can make good writing, because only that is worth writing about, worth the agony and the sweat. We must learn the problems of the human heart again. We must teach ourselves that the basis of all things is to be afraid, leaving no room in our workshops for the old verities and truths of the heart, the old universal truth without which any story is ephemeral and doomed. We must include love and honor and pity and pride and compassion and sacrifice. Until we do so, we labor under a curse. We write not of love, but of lust of defeats in which nobody wins anything of value, of victories without hope, and worst of all, without pity and compassion. Our griefs grieve on no universal bones, leaving no scars. We write not of the heart, but of the glands. Until we relearn these things, we will write as though we stand and watch the end of humanity. I decline to accept the end of humanity. It is easy enough to say that humans are immortal simply because we will endure, that when the last ding-dong of doom is clanged and faded from the last worthless rock hanging tideless in the last red and dying evening, that even then there will still be one more sound, that of our puny, inexhaustible voices still talking. I refuse to accept this. I believe that humanity will not merely endure, we will prevail. We are immortal, not because we are alone among creatures, have an, not because we alone among creatures have an inexhaustible voice, but because we have a soul a spirit capable of compassion and sacrifice and endurance. The poets, the writers' duty is to write about these things. It is their privilege to help humanity endure by lifting their hearts, by reminding them of the courage and honor and hope and pride and compassion and pity and sacrifice which has been the glory of our past. The poet's voice need not merely be the record of humanity. It can be one of the props, the pillars, to help us endure and to prevail. That's just good stuff. 
Faulkner's words to a culture in 1950 that had become preoccupied worldwide with the threat of mass destruction is so much more applicable today in a culture where the threat is not some superpower and it's not just weapons of mass destruction, but, but the threat is within each heart and each mind as we divide among ourselves and fight among ourselves and, and as we create this sort of pejorative kind of understanding of what's worthwhile. It is a light. <laughs> Don't worry, they hardly ever explode. <laughs> yes, just get under your desk. <laughs> yeah, so now they're changing the lights and uh, seeing if we can get it to stop, but uh, it's just a fan. Yeah, it'll be okay. Everybody all right? Can we go on? You know, uh, I don't know if you know this, but our technical director, his last Sunday was last Sunday. <laughs> just, it just nose right over. Just, I mean, one. <laughs> so as we stop and we think about that reality, we think about what it means for us in our culture today. Are we helping? Are you helping? That, that this gospel of Jesus Christ which is summarized in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you said, here's William Faulkner speaking in 1950, I'd say to you, well, here's the Sermon on the Mount. Here's Jesus saying, this is about human dignity. This is about how we instill hope in the lives of the people around us. You are the salt of the earth. What good is salt if it loses its saltiness? What good is the community of faith if we are not seasoning life and its savory nature and its sweet neighbor, if we are not adding something and enhancing. And, and listen, let's don't be global. We ought to be adding something and enhancing something in our homes, in our families. In a few weeks, we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving. I, I want you to think as you walk into that celebration, I'm salt. I am so salt. <laughs> I am salt. I'm going to be salt. I'm salting. I'm enhancing. People are going to be so much happier that I'm here. Because if I'm not here, they're going to be tasting things going, mm, 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 it's missing something. And then that's our call. That's what Jesus is saying. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. I think most of us are like, let me duck and cover. Let me get under my desk until the threat's passed. But the kingdom of God is a place in which we say, nope, that is not what we're going to do. That is not how we live. We don't duck and cover. We are a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. They put it on a stand so it gives light to everyone in the house. Let your light shine in such a way. This is the argument in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light shine in such a way that they see your good deeds and their humanity and dignity is lifted so they give praise to your Father in heaven. This movement of humanism, you can talk about it in whatever way you want to, but let's at least acknowledge this. If we believe we are a random act of of nature, that we are here by accident, there is something of our dignity that has been stripped away in that moment. That is very different than when I look at someone and I say, you were created in the very image of God. His breath animates your life. Because of that, you have immense worth. You matter. You are significant. I don't care where you come from. I, I don't care what religion you practice. I, I don't care what your ethnicity. I don't care what your origins are. I, I don't care what is happening in your journey. You have immense dignity and worth. You are a creation of the divine God. And either we're in or we're not. You are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. 
and, and let your light shine so that they see your good deeds and give praise to your Father in heaven. And when we stop and we begin to think about how this begins to unfold, now he says, listen, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. I came to tell you how it, you've heard it said, but I say, you've been practicing it this way, but there's a better way to live the kingdom of God. And that's what I'm going to clarify. I'm not to destroy it, I'm fulfilling it. I'm not saying that doesn't matter. I'm saying you thought it was this, but it's this. You thought it was about outcomes, but it's about causes. You thought it was about performing well. It's about your creatureliness. I want to address this. You've been doing that. That's not very satisfying, and it doesn't work well because none of us are that good at it. We just don't perform that well. I want to talk about this thing underneath, your creatureliness. That's what I want to talk about. And by the way, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never experience the kingdom of heaven. Uh, A Pharisaical kind of life in which we practice our faith in a negative way. Here's what we don't do. These are all the things we do not do. We have whole religions built on this. This is what we don't do. We have churches that would say we are more spiritual than you because we don't do more than you don't do. I'm a better believer because I do less things than you do. Really? Because that is not, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be, we're not about what we're not doing, we're about what we are doing. What we are doing is engaging humanity with dignity, a gracious dignity. And that matters. matters. That's an attitude of the heart that has great significance to us. So Jesus comes then to the middle of the teaching, and we talked about this last week. He comes to the middle of the teaching, and now he begins to get very specific about this conversation between outcomes and root causes. And he starts by saying, you've heard it said, don't commit murder, but I tell you, don't be angry with someone. And I talked last week about how (laughs) over time, somehow we added another phrase, without cause, because we couldn't imagine that we weren't supposed to be angry with people. And as long as we have a good reason, then it's okay to be mad. Except Jesus didn't say that. He said, you've heard it said, do not commit murder, but I say, don't be angry. And then he said, and don't say, raka, brother. <laughs> don't be insulting. Don't be contemptuous of people around you. This is getting less and less fun, isn't it? <laughs> and then he says, not only do I want you to not be angry and not be insulting and contemptuous, I also want you to be agents of reconciliation. I want you to go about making peace, restoring relationship. And now he gets very personal because he's continuing and he's going to talk about two more things now. He's going to talk about commitment and he's going to talk about showing mercy. And I think these things fit together very nicely. Now, I will tell you this. Nobody likes to read this passage of scripture in church. That said, we're going to read it. (laughs) Probably one of the most misunderstood passages. And I say this whenever we deal with this. Uh, nobody, nobody likes to do this thing. Uh, like if I had laid out this whole series, I would just skip this part. And the reason is because I, I'm going to do my very best to put it in the context in which it was spoken and give it its meaning. And some people will go, wow, I don't think that's what it meant. Or I could just read it and let you take it for what it is. And then some people go, wow, that was harsh. So I'm pretty sure that none of you are going to be happy in the next few minutes. So just be kind. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. These are very cheerful passages. (laughs) And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, don't swear at all on an oath at all, not either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You've heard it said... An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you, take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain to the righteous and the unrighteousness. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, that's a cheerful passage. So he begins by talking about a commitment And what they look like. And he gives us a couple of things to think about. He says, listen, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that a man who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery with her in his heart already. Well, what he's driving at is that he's coming to this moment in which he's saying, listen, you have heard it said, don't act out. And what I'm telling you is don't act out, but don't attitude out either. You see how that works? You've heard this said, but then I want you to understand this part too. Now, there's something going on here that's very obvious, and that is he's talking to men. So like in the first century, women did not look at men with lust in their heart. We fixed that over the centuries. We've become much more egalitarian in our sinfulness. Amen? Amen. Now, I will tell you this. Uh, Women did look at men with lust in their heart in the first century because they were human. But Jesus is addressing something that is specific to the culture. You remember the story in John 8? There is a woman who is brought before Jesus who has been caught in adultery. Which would involve some circumstances. And Jesus is asked to pass judgment on the woman. What is wrong with the picture? There's no man. Now... In the first century, the culture allowed for men to act out in lots of ways that were unaccountable. This is one of them. That the Pharisaical law had been constructed in a way where there was always a way for a man to sort of get around the rules and get around the commitments. It was always sort of a way. There was always kind of another. And so that was sort of an awkward reality. That men were not, in fact, in the culture, women had no standing. 
So we're going to move from this conversation to a conversation about divorce. And what is he going to say? You have heard it said that a man must present to a woman a certificate of divorce. It's very specific because a woman couldn't divorce a man. She had no legal standing to do that. In fact, culturally speaking, scholars believe that the reason that Jesus shows such great compassion to the prostitutes and the women who have bad reputations because most of those women have been disenfranchised by a man and the only way they can eat is they have to practice prostitution because they are disenfranchised and they have no way of making money in the culture. And so Jesus is addressing a very specific problem that's going on in the first century in which he is really elevating the dignity of women in this conversation. And what he's saying is, you've heard it said that you're not supposed to murder, but I say don't be angry, don't be contemptuous, don't be insulting of others. And now I'm saying to you, listen, I don't only want to say to you, don't act out, I want to say don't act up. I not only want to end the process in which women are exploited, I want to say, I want to change the attitude that underlies all of that. I want you to not attitude out either. So he's talking about commitment. Here's how that looks in this commitment to treat people with dignity. This is how it works in divorce. You're making a commitment in a marriage. Now, the Mosaic Law provided for a way of divorce. In fact, divorce for a man in the first century was very simple. A woman could be divorced for any cause. Uh, If she burned breakfast, he could take her to the temple in the Jewish culture, and he could stand before the officials and say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And the divorce, he was granted a divorce, given a certificate of divorce according to the Mosaic Law. She was disenfranchised. She has no real way of living or making a living. And so she's, she's really left on her own. And he gets to go on and remarry and do whatever it else he, he wants to do. So Jesus is addressing this issue. He's, he's taking it head on. I get to do a lot of weddings. I do. I don't know how many weddings. I would guess uh, a, a slow year. There's 10 uh, I had a year recently, there was like 35 weddings in a year. So if you count up the weeks, that's, uh, there's 52 weeks in a year, 35 weddings would keep you busy. And I, I get to do weddings in unbelievably beautiful settings. Uh, I, we had a, someone here first service, I just did uh, his wedding a few weeks ago at Convict Lake in Mammoth, standing on the bank of Convict Lake with the mountains in the background reflecting in the see at sunset you know reflecting in the lake and that's the wedding that I forgot the name of the bride and groom at the end <laughs> I was soaking it up <laughs> but you stand in that those beautiful locations and you hear kids making commitments for better for worse for richer for poorer to love and to cherish. Listen, nobody wants to act out, but nobody should be acting up either. I don't do that, but do you do this? I don't add that. I, I'm not, act, but are you, add, are you salt and light? Are you bringing something into this commitment? And if we're still confused about what Jesus is talking about, he says, and by the way, don't swear by heaven or earth when you make an oath. You see the train of thought? 
You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say, don't look around like that. Get the creatureliness. It's not enough not to act out. Don't attitude out. You've heard it said about you that you can have a certificate of divorce. Listen, I'm saying make your marriage great. I'm saying don't act out, but don't attitude out either. So much so that let your yes be yes. When you say, yes, I'm committed, then be committed. You don't have to have superlative commitment. Swear by heaven or by earth. Just say yes. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. It's a commitment. You can't have radical obedience. You just have obedience or disobedience. You don't have obedience and radical obedience. You just have obedience or not. You just have honoring or not. And when we think about human dignity and we think about what's happening in our culture, what does it mean to put worth into the life of the people around you? And for some of us, you know, it's so much easier to put worth into the life of the people out there instead of the people in here. And as if we didn't figure it out yet, then he says, oh, and by the way, I want you to show mercy. You've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other cheek as well. Now, now you could read this sequence. If they ask you to go one mile, go two. If they ask for your coat, give them your cloak as well. You could say, well, Jesus doesn't care anything about justice. He just wants us to just give everything away. Well, these are not the only teachings of Jesus. These are in a sequence and a context. He also says, God cannot be mocked. A person reaps what they sow. There is real justice in the life of God and in the understanding of righteousness. But in this moment, he's saying, and by the way, when you think about acting out and attituding out, you better have mercy. Because all of us have acted out and attituded out at some point. This is not about pointing a finger and creating some kind of second-class citizens who have experienced failure. In fact, what Jesus is saying is exactly the opposite of that. You have heard it said that you're not supposed to do this, but I'm saying that is not the only way in which we can destroy relationships. You can destroy them by the creatureliness too. And I am saying to you, as we have all failed in these places, have mercy on yourself and have mercy on others. That's why the redemptive story of God is such that it reads this way. Whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Because in this equation of God's kingdom, if we are going to raise the dignity of other people, we will have to raise our own dignity as well. Amen? You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you are to love your neighbor as yourself. How am I ever going to offer grace and dignity to another human being if I haven't received that grace and dignity myself? And there's two things that happen in this equation. One is, I'm all that. Which was the pharisaical condition. I don't need grace because I don't act out. Ever, 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 ever. And then there's the other condition. It's me, it's me, it's me, it's me. I'm a mess, it's me. It's me, it's me, it's me, it's me, it's me. And Jesus is simply saying, listen, if you think that you didn't act out, somewhere you attituded out. And that's the same thing. And, and, and if you did attitude out and you did act out, because those things are related too, 
then I have grace for you. And what I'd like for you to do is to know that where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. Get up from here and go make your best life. Get up from here and go be redeemed. And the redemptive power of God does not say, okay, you, you messed up. You acted out, you attituded out, you, you messed up. Here's the deal. I'm going to forgive you, but you're going to go to the consolation bracket. And you're going to have an average life now, and you can have an average dream with some average outcomes. But you're forgiven. <laughs> and when you die, you'll go to heaven. You won't live on Main Street, but there'll be a nice cul-de-sac somewhere. That is not the redemptive power of God, is it? If anyone is in Christ, you are a new creation. There's a brand new plan A. I don't know what happened to you. I don't know how you got scarred up. I don't know how you got damaged. But the redemptive story of the dignity of God is to say to you, I don't care where you've been. I don't care, what, I don't care if you're a tax collector, if you're a sinner, if you're a Samaritan. I, I, I don't care if you're a, an up-and-outer Nicodemus who can't figure it out. I'm telling you, God has a plan A for you. And to restore the dignity of your own sense of worth, to pour into you his image for all the attitude and all the acting out, you are forgiven. Get up from here and go make your best life. I've got a brand new plan A for you. To the nation of Israel, lost in exile, go ahead and give your children and married and plant your crops and settle down. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. Jeremiah 29, 11. If I lost you there, Jeremiah 29, he's saying to the people in exile, sit down, get on with your life, plant your crops, do your thing. I got a plan for you. You think it's falling apart, but it's not. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. Some of us have been in exile. We've been through it. We've been through broken marriages. We've been through broken lives. We've been through failure. We understand this. We don't spend any time in this passage of Scripture because we feel horrible when we read it. But it is a powerfully redemptive, uplifting place of human dignity in which Jesus says, Listen, I want you to practice a kind of grace that elevates whoever's been through this process and to know this. I love you. Neither do I condemn you. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Neither do I condemn you. Get up from this place. I have a new plan A for you. You don't have to settle for anything. You just have to trust me. I know the plans I have for you to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. I want to restore your dignity so you can go and restore the dignity of this world in which you live. God, would you help us? You told us that as you teach us these things, if we hear your words and put them into practice, we are like wise people who build on solid rock. As we hear these words and do not put them into practice, we are like foolish people who build on sand. I pray that as we close this service, you would allow us to put into practice these things. That you would allow us to Receive the grace into our own hearts. There are people in this room right now who need to sense your forgiveness, your grace, your restoration. And I pray that you would visit it upon them right now. That you would remind them 
that you are the advocate. We just held the elements in our hand and we spoke the words. This is my broken body. May it hold you blameless unto everlasting life. Your righteousness that washes and cleanses us. Gives us new life and new beginnings. I pray as we receive into our own hearts the gift of that dignity, we would practice it. We would speak it. We would be known not merely for what we don't do, but for the seasoning and the light and the warmth that we bring into the world and to our family and to the people around us. Teach us. Hear our responses. Some will respond during the words of this song. Some will need to come forward and find a prayer counselor. But may each of us respond to your word, I pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.